the path of the witch is so unique. The, the gift of witchcraft. I was able to see, hear, and communicate with spirits. A very personal relationship between a person and spirit. Carnal lust and some things like that. Working with different energies and spirits and communicating. Creating magic. Powerful yeah. ritual and powerful <laughs> spells. She's actually sending me in the cold. The role of the witch is to make change. Bless it be, y'all. Bless it be. People ask me, like, okay, I'm a witch, and I don't know what to do. Twenty years ago, three young friends realized they were witches. They scattered to different parts of the world, following magic and spirit. Now, they're back in their hometown to share what they've learned. Welcome to That Witch Life Podcast, your home for living as a witch in today's world. Hey, witches. Welcome back to That Witch Life Podcast. I'm Courtney, and I'm your host today. I am joined by Kanani. Hello. And Hillary. Hello. And we have got a, like, intense, awesome, terrifying, wonderful, all of the things show for you today. Hillary, I really hope you have the goat ready. because Oh, I got got it. I got it right here. Okay, um, because we're about to interview one of my very favorite podcasters of all time. Um, Sarah Marshall from You're Wrong About is going to join us to discuss and dispel the myths around witchcraft and Satan worship, something that most yeah, yeah, I know, something that most of us have spent exhaustible, exhaustible, is that a word? Exhausting. Exhaustive. Exhaustive. Like extremely exhausting amounts of time trying to trying to differentiate. So before she comes on, Kanani is going to review The Witches, the one with Angelica Houston, um, as the new movie is coming out at the end of the month. And so we also took a peek at the trailer and uh, we dig into a listener question. But before we get started, (laughs) Kanani, we got you so good. With your old dirty coat in a box. Oh my God. Seriously, men don't understand anything. (laughs) (laughs) What happened was Kanani's birthday was earlier this week. And so over the weekend, while we were recording, we had secretly reached out to our Patreon members as well as some of Kanani's favorite people and said, listen, we're organizing a surprise Zoom bomb. So at the end of the episode, you have to come in and surprise Kanani, and it's going to be really funny. So <laughs> you can see some of it in the video on our Patreon page where I'm stalling for time because Kanani was kind of whipping through the interview pretty fast <laughs> to try to wait for people to come in. And Kanani was so excited. But then it was very funny because as soon as it was over, she started immediately calling people and was like, how long have you known about this? Because she was delighted, but she was also really mad that she'd been tricked because she's pretty hard to trick. Um, I am super hard to trick because one, I am nosy as fuck. <laughs> and and I am, I mean, there's no way to sound this that doesn't sound snotty, so I don't care. But I'm I'm quite clever. So I tend to pick up on little cues and little signals and little signs, which is one of the reasons why Courtney later admitted she didn't tell certain people because she knew I'd figured out. And she was, she was being so careful because I always figure shit out. And hence how also I just knew instinctively what was in the box. But, um, oh yeah, as soon as it was over, I just, some of the people that were on zoom that are personal friends, I immediately interrogated them and was like, how long have you been plotting this? 
how long has this been happening? And I was so angry, because more angry at myself, because clearly I've just been so distracted with everything that's been going on. And so I was so mad that she just totally snuck it in there because it was just, for whatever reason, 100% off my radar. Well, so, yeah, I was interrogating people right and left, and they were just like, we're sorry, we only knew about it a few days. Maybe we threw you off because... I told you you could open your birthday present during the episode, but you couldn't do it until the end. And listeners, if you listen to the last episode, like all the way to the end, past the ending music, we always have some little clip from like the pre-show drama or something that happened during the show that doesn't really have anything to do with the show, but we find pretty funny. And we clip it and we just stick it on the end. Well, this time, what you get is Kanani arguing with Hillary and I and actually getting really mad at us. She was so pissed. She was so <laughs> mad. And I was like, just, you just need to wait to open it till the end. And she got really mad. And she's just like, she okay, got mad. Fine. You know, usually it's the host who decides the run of the show. And Hillary and I just did a whole coup and said, no, Kanani, you don't get to decide the flow of the show today, even though you're the host. And she was not happy about that. But <laughs> so then the present was Kanani, do you want to explain what your present was? It, it is a vintage uh, faux leopard coat that I borrowed from Courtney a couple times that I really loved and that I kept teasing her I was going to steal. And she kept saying she would never, ever part with it. And so she's teased me about it over the last couple of years. And so I was showing my husband, I'm like, this is what's in the coat. And he just looks at me and he's like, her coat she's going to give you her old coat. And I'm like, you don't understand. It's like, I like this coat. It's like a faux. And he's like, okay. And he just totally like disregarded it. Like I was insane. Like no one, my best friend in the world since we were 12 is not going to give me a dirty old coat, you know, that he's just getting rid of. Like, that's not what my best friend in the world is going to do. So, so then I, I open it. We do all the whole podcast thing. I'm super excited. I put it on. So as soon as the podcast's over, I walk out with the open box and with the coat in my hand and I, I show it to him and I'm like, see, told you. And his mouth just drops, drops open. He's so offended <laughs> and so confused that I'm not offended. And he just looks at me and he's like, he really did give you an old coat that she already had. For your 40th birthday. I mean, he was just, it was amazing. I told, I told Courtney, I was so mad at myself that I didn't like record that moment. Cause I <laughs> hashtag not all straight white men. However, this was a very hashtag straight white man moment. Why did she give you her old coat as a present? Because it is a very expensive vintage faux leather, three quarter length coat that looks fabulous on her. And she has been coveting it for two years. And so there is a great deal of sentimentality with this. And, <laughs> and also she looks great in it. And also now that she's 40, she should be wearing a three quarters length faux leopard coat because that's just how it goes. So <laughs> we have a segment that is called Kanani reviews a movie. The rest of the world has already seen. And the movie of the week is the witches starring Angelica Houston. Um, and there will be a remake that's coming out toward the end of the month. Um, so Kanani though is going to review the first version, and then we're going to talk about the trailer for the new version. So, Kanani, go for it. Tell us all about The Witches. So, the plot line is a young boy, his parents die, and he ends up being taken care of by his grandmother, 
and his grandmother tells him stories of witches and how to spot witches and so that he can avoid being abducted and, you know, killed or whatnot by witches. And they end up going to a hotel, which coincidentally uh, is hosting a convention for an international or it's said international witches committee or something like that under the guise of it was like women against cruelty to children or something like that. But in, in reality, it was actually a witches convention. So he ends up, uh, they end up being at the same hotel. He uh, gets stuck in a room where he sees them doing some of their spells and gets away In the meantime, they turn a child into a mouse. He later ends up, gets turned into a mouse by the head witch. And then it's about his grandmother trying to stop the witches uh, and save her grandson. And they end up poisoning the witches and turning all the witches into mice. Now, see, I I saw that movie when I was a kid and I remember being kind of disturbed by it. The as Jim Henson can be his caricatures and like when they're in the prosthetics and stuff is could be very scary, Uh very dark. And it was funny because I because I hadn't seen it and you guys had said it it had some borderline creepy. And my daughter, my son can he can watch all kinds of stuff and he's just whatevs. But my daughter watches something that no one in the world could consider creepy and it's going to keep her up at night. And so I was watching it before I was letting her watch it, but she kind of walked through and she immediately looks up, sees Angelica Houston. She's like, mom, it's Morticia. <laughs> and I just, just laughed because there's every movie That's ever right. that has her. That's all she said. Mom, it's Morticia. She just like, that is Morticia. Well, we also watched the trailer for the remake, which is coming out at the end of the month, um, starring Anne Hathaway and Octavia Spencer. So, I mean, I love anything with Octavia Spencer and it's Oh my God. Yeah. I will, you stole the words directly no, out of my mouth. Anything <laughs> that she is in. I love, I love, I love her. Right. Well, I wasn't, I, yeah, I wasn't sure how I felt about Anne Hathaway playing the high whip. Yeah. I was going to say this thing. I was thing. like, uh, she's a kind of, she's a little too wholesome, but I, from the trailer, it looks like I'd watch it. I'm open-minded. I'm open-minded. I, I will. I will watch yeah. this movie. Yes. Yeah, for me, I'm like, so I actually really, I think Anne Hathaway is an amazing actress, but I was surprised that that was the choice, right? Because I was like, hmm. But I also know that I have been surprised by roles she played before as well and been like, oh, wow, yeah, you you really did a great job with that. So, and then I saw that Octavia, but, but, but what sold me was like, one, I love this story. Two, it looked like a recreation that was pretty true to the story, which was the other thing is like, are they going to make it super different? It looked very like, like a, a legitimate recreation. And then three, um, yeah, I love Octavia Spencer. And I think that it, it yeah, I just think, it, I think it's going to be a good, I think it's going to be good. It, it got me enough interest to want to watch it. So I was the only thing that I noticed after I watched. So when I I watched the trailer and then I watched the actual movie, because I was like, well, if I'm going to watch this and I love Anne Hathaway, so I'm absolutely going to watch it. Um, I'm like, then I want to watch the first one. The only thing that bummed me out was when I watched the trailer the second time, I realized that in the newer version, they're not doing any of the 
uh, at least they didn't show it and it didn't look like it, that they're doing any transforming of the witches. Yeah, I think they're skipping the prosthetics. Like, in the convention, she's like floating. Yeah, that's like, that's like totally, yeah, that's, that's so hopefully they'll bring something back that will, you know, make it worth its while. But yep, something else to watch along with uh, The Craft, the legacy movie. So we will... <laughs> November will be us all either celebrating or shitting on all of these remakes of our beloved classics. So, (laughs) so we have a listener question um, and it goes, I have been emotionally invested in someone who I'm unable to be with due to a set of circumstances for almost a decade. And it's time that I let them go from my heart so I can move on. It's painful because I have never found another person that I've connected with on this level, but it's out of my control. So I think a really beautiful way to move on would be to participate in a releasing, releasing ritual of some kind. I would like to honor my connection with them and let it go in a healthy, grateful way. Um, I have to say, I love their intention. I think they've, they've made it very, very clear what it is that they want. Um, what do y'all think? What should, what should this person do? Yeah, I think, I think it can be really helpful to kind of um, do a ritual to cut kind of that emotional connection or emotional tie with someone. It just allows you, that doesn't mean that you have to banish them from your life or cut any memory of them out of your life. But I think that that cutting that cord or cutting that tie can be really helpful in, in processing moving on. Because I think when we hold on to all of that energy from someone and all of that emotion that we've invested in for so long, I think it makes it very hard to move forward because even if we meet someone else or we have, or we, we have other opportunities in our life, it's like this thing that's there. Like, Oh, I don't, I, I have this thing that's anchoring me down and it often provides a source of comfort at some point, but there's a point in a stage that I think that letting go of that means that you can move forward. Um, I really like bath magic for that or shower magic because I, I love the idea of things like that feeling is like letting it wash away, letting that and watching it go down the drain. Like I really love when I'm trying to get rid of a heavy emotion is one, it's soothing from a physical level. So like there's the physical benefit and the calming benefit there, but from a, from a magical level, when you are in that space and you're watching that grief and any residual from them fall off of you and watch it go down the drain, whether it's in a shower or get out of the bath, imagine it falling off of you in the water. The water is what's cleansing you. And then when you get out of the bath, you're staring at the drain and I stand there and I watch it till the last drop is gone. And then I say, thank you. I, I've, I really follow that prescription as well with things, but what I would also advise for this person is, especially if this has been affecting them for 10 years, it's not going to go away in one ritual. What I would recommend is perhaps a series of rituals. Now, if, if you were, if I were you, and this were my, my situation, I would do a ritual for every year this had been affecting me, including the years that I was with this person. So in your case, this is like 10, you know, 12 or 15 years. So I would say that this is going to take probably 10, 12, 15 rituals. What I would do is do a bath, um, a bath ritual weekly for that 10 to 15 weeks. Um, some of the ingredients I really like in setting it up the way that, that Hillary suggested is what I would do as well. Um, some of my favorite ingredients include 
um, apple cider vinegar. Um, you know, if you're close to an ocean and you can get some outgoing tide water, it's really, really powerful for that. If you can't do that, just some sea salt, um, salt water is in there. Um, and, um, also sometimes like some, a little bit of hot pepper oil or something like that, just a touch. You don't want to, you know, be bathing in something that's spicy, but something like that is really good for sloughing stuff off. Um, also lemon balm and, um, um, asafoetida powder, which you can usually order from a metaphysical store, but do that every week at the same time for, you know, a period of weeks that equate to the number of years this person was in your life again, 10 years or, or more. Well, one of the things though, that I wanted to point out, she didn't mention that this person isn't in her life anymore. She just said that they can't be together. And so she's trying to release them from, from their heart. Uh And I think that, but I think that's something that should be added is because they're not necessarily being specific as to whether or not they're going to be maintaining this relationship, but they're just letting go of the romanticized fantasy aspect of it. That I think it's also important that you're going to kind of need to come to terms with, you can do all of these other things, but if you're maintaining contact with them, yeah. Then, you know, you're still, you're like, okay, well now I'm just going to accept the fact that we're only friends. We're only friends. I'm not going to think that we're ever going to be more than friends. I don't, you can do all the magic in the world, but I don't know that that allows you the space that you need actually move on. A good period of time, if you're thinking about in a witch's context, might be a year and a day, like a year and a day, block them on social media. I think a year and a day would probably be good. Mm -hmm. And because when they come and, and you're going to, you know, there's a lot of magical things like they talked about baths and, but I think also you're going to want to do some burning rituals Mm -hmm. that involve getting rid of maybe letters or things like that. Um, you'll want to delete old emails, Facebook messages, messages, texts, things like that. Magical declutter. Maybe you have a tendency to go back to, to kind of read over. You need to get rid of that. And, and it, and it doesn't mean it didn't happen. It, it, you still have the memories. You still have all of that, but it means that you're moving past that. That's not where you are now. And so then in a year and a day after you've done more self-work, and you've, you've let that go. If at that point you want to reestablish a friendship with this person, cause they mean so much to you. Um, then, then what you're building is something new. Um, because I think that if you don't let time pass and you don't do, do frankly, a lot of kind of typical relationship breakup stuff, um, then I don't think you're truly doing yourself the service of actually moving on from it. I think you're just kind of trying to act like you can't can't magically make yourself get over someone. Good luck. Good luck. We'll be thinking about you. So, um, quick announcement, everybody. Uh, there are still a few tickets left for illuminating the shadow, a tarot masterclass with Sasha Graham. Um, this is a day long experiential masterclass uh, designed to lure you out of your comfort zone to look at the tarot cards and your life through a different lens, guiding you into the deepest recesses of your inner being to cleanse your soul, unearth hidden qualities and unlock dormant potential using fairy tale imagery, myth, and the major arcana of the tarot to unpack the story of your life. 
life. It's a class that's accessible for people of all tarot levels. So whether you've just picked up a deck or you are very experienced, there's a lot of things to um, gain from your time with Sasha. Like I said last week, Sasha's a very old friend of mine. I cannot recommend her enough. Um, take this offer up because uh, it, it's fabulous. And um, there aren't that many seats left, as I understand. Um, they, the dates are October 24th and November 14th. They have standard and VIP packages. Um, so if you're interested, go to tarotpalooza.com and book your space. Um, the link will also be in the show notes on our website. Again, that is um, Illuminating the Shadow, a tarot masterclass with Sasha Gra- um, Graham. Kanani, um, you have some, we have some fun stuff that's available on Etsy this week, I believe. I am super excited. So we have our normal spell cards. We have our stickers. We have our bumper stickers. We have uh, some Samhain cards, greeting cards, which are super cute. And I love those cards have, so much. I know, I love them. We now have our very first, hopefully we'll do more if people really love them, spell kit. And it's actually, uh, as an homage to the season, it is an ancestral spell kit in a way that people can use them to help uh, connect with their ancestors and speak to their ancestors. So I think people really love it. It has everything you need in the little organza bag. It's got herbs. It's got a candle. This is a special Hillary, a special Hillary herbal blend. From what I understand. Yep. So I blended these uh, ingredients together specifically for Samhain and, you know, the connections that people are, I'm sure, hoping to make with with their ancestors. So um, it's a good way to connect with uh, those that have passed. um, And I hopefully it should smell pretty nice, too. (laughs) Yeah. They, oh, it totally does. And um, I included an original spell that's designed specifically for um, ancestor work. And that's included on a pretty little scroll. So these bags are so fun. Yeah. And it has the candle. It has a stone. And it has a little, uh, I love the little broom ornament, which I think is yes. so adorable. And it comes with one of our stickers. So I think, in uh, a bay leaf uh, also. So I think people are going to love it. I'm really excited. Yeah, and like I said, if people really love them, then we'll keep making spell kits and having them available on our Etsy shop. But for now, that's the one we have. And I think I think people are going to love it. Yeah, so it's That Witch, um, that Witch Life podcast on Etsy. And we, um, again, those links are on our show notes. So as always, um, we are so very, very thankful to all of our supporters. And we wanted to let everybody know how much we really try to make this show accessible to everyone. Um, including people who are deaf or hard of hearing, which means providing transcripts for our podcasts. And Hillary is our resident transcriber. Um, but as we announced on Patreon, but with uh, life stuff, Hillary ran into some health problems. And then of course there was the massive fire evacuation. And so we've gotten um, kind of behind on the transcripts, but thank you to all of your support. We were able to hire someone who was helping us get caught up on these transcripts. Um, so we're very, very thankful for all of your support. I, I just have to say, I just have to say, this was a huge thank you because this was the first expense really that we've had that has been an expense that's come in that we did not have to pay out of our own pockets. Yes. Because we actually had a little bit of Patreon money that we were able to throw at an expense instead of having to front the money. It was amazing. So I cannot thank people enough that now as things we are trying to do more and grow more and make things more accessible for people, 
we're able to do that without having to dip into our own family's pockets. And also, I just thank you so much because for me, that gave me the space. A kidney stone is what happened. It's not something that I would recommend. Not fun. Um, and so it really gave me the space to be able to take care of myself. Uh, I'm someone that burns the candle at both ends a lot of the time. So that the gift of that support allowed me to take time to take care of myself and recover without the stress looming over of getting those all done. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So again, yes, thank you very much, everybody. Um, so for those of you who are on Patreon, last week we released a bunch of great stuff, including the full interview with Millie DeMod and the unedited Kanani surprise birthday party, um, as well as our watch of the craft trailer and our David Duchovny sing-along. So if you join us at any level, you get access to this great content and more. But if you join at the $5 or above level, you get access to our Witch Squad, which is a private Facebook page where you can connect with us and with other witches as well as get access to special quarterly events. Um, we've had so much fun this week just hanging out and um, meeting everybody and chatting about magic and just hilarious jokes and making fun of Kanani because she was all surprised. Um, so definitely get in on that and come hang out with the squad. And um, our next special event is on October 18th. It is a live watch of Hocus Pocus, which I for some reason have never seen. So you can watch it with us and watch me watch it for the first time. Um, <laughs> other ways, other ways you can support the show friends. If you cannot do a monthly donation, totally get it. You can buy us a coffee or buy that witch life merchandise on Etsy. Um, also consider becoming an episode sponsor. It's a great way to promote your business to thousands of witches. You can also purchase a shout out to let people know about the incredible event you're hosting, or just send some love to a favorite witch in your life. So find out more on our website at thatwitchlife.com. And are we ready for a word from our sponsor? We are ready. I swear I spend half my life soaking in the bath. Bath magic has been such an integral part of my magical practice. It's especially critical during these trying times to be able to unwind and take care of ourselves. I was so excited to discover Mystical Existence, a small family-run company based out of Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. Mystical Existence was named for proprietor Maggie's lifelong infatuation with the night sky. They have incredible products made with magic and love for your sacred bath time. Their soaps are made with a goat milk, glycerin, or olive oil, oil base designed by and for the magically inclined, such as their Taurus soap, which is coffee scented and made with coffee grounds added for gentle exfoliation, or Zeus, which is a fresh lemon scented pumice soap, great for hardworking hands. They also have Libra, a true feminine soap with a floral and fruity fragrance, colored pink with a little added sparkle, which is also available as body butter. I'm a lover of bath bombs and they have beautiful bath bombs infused with luxurious essential oils. And they have mooncakes for showers that add an extra special, gloriously scented pop as you're winting away the stress of the day. They also have a hard lotion bar packed in a tin for easy travel. You can just toss it in your bag and go. And a hand and body lotion called Scorpio with a dark, musky, and sensuous scent. Set the mood for your bath time rituals with one of their soy wax candles with three fragrances to choose from. Subscribe to Mystical Existence mailing list to be the first to know about new items, limited edition offerings, monthly specials, and sales. Get 15% off until November 10th by going through mysticalexistence.com and enter TWLP at checkout. Mystical Existence turning your bath ritual from ordinary to extraordinary. Thank you to Mystical Existence for being an episode sponsor. With us all staying at home as much as possible and practicing distance learning, now is a good time to take your magical classes online. We are delighted to have Sacred Mists Academy of Magical Arts and Sciences as an episode sponsor. Since 2002, 
Sacred Mists Academy has offered comprehensive online magical training programs with working witches around the world, including first through third degree Wicca training, with an elder program available for initiates of the Sacred Mists tradition. Other programs include historical paganism, herbalist certifications, spell crafting classes, tarot courses, Reiki training, and more. Online learning is very helpful for moms whose schedules can be incredibly hectic, and it allows you the freedom to learn in your own time. It can also be a great platform to meet other witchy mamas who are excited to learn about the same topics as you. Students also have access to the Sacred Mist Circle, a completely private, student-only social media platform, not Facebook, with profile pages, discussion boards, groups, blogs, a searchable book of shadows, videos, music, and more. Other Sacred Mists Academy social groups include witchcrafting, if you're interested in creating your own tools, a divination group to discuss decks and share readings, empath groups to explore this gift and learn about shielding, healing, kitchen witchcraft, and more. Join the Sacred Mists live chats for rituals, sabbats, espits, healing, live divination readings, study halls, and social gatherings for and by students. To enroll, go to sacredmistsacademy.com and enter Witch Life during registration to receive free enrollment, a savings of $30. Monthly tuition then depends on which course or courses you take. Limit one per student available until December 31st, 2020. Manifest the change you want to see in yourself and the world around you through Sacred Mists Academy. Thank you to Sacred Mists for being an episode sponsor. You all know that we are all obsessed with herbs around here. All three of us lost our minds when we discovered Fox and Elder. Fox and Elder is a small farm just north of Nashville, Tennessee, run by Sarah Schuster, who was an herbalist, herb farmer, and plant witch. Their work not only offers a variety of herb-based products, but also offers education on homesteading and herb cultivation. Fox and Elder's products include teas and tinctures, including a line of tarot teas based on the major arcana. Their empress tea draws on a variety of floral notes, herbs, and peaches, which includes calendula, hawthorn leaves and flowers, lavender, plus other delicious herbs. I'm totally particular about my teas. I'm super picky. And so I'm super stoked that they offer custom tea blends working with clients to blend something wonderful and delicious just for you based on your needs and desires. Fox and Elder also offers a monthly zine called Full Moon Fill Up, which offers tarot spreads, herbal profiles, and recipes. The Samhain issue will have a focus on ancestral work, a tarot spread for the full moon in Taurus, and an herbal profile on Skullcap. Fox and Elder also offers a podcast called Tending Seeds, which covers a variety of homesteading and herbalism topics available on all major platforms or directly on their website. So be sure to subscribe and add Tending Seeds to your listening rotation. Their episodes follow the seasons and do deep dives into gardening and how to find powerful magic and healing in different herbs you can find in your yard or just along the road. As a witch who does a lot of work with quote-unquote weeds, I was fascinated by episode 29's exploration of goldenrod. I know I will be listening as my husband and I finally start growing our own garden. To receive 15% off your first purchase of teas, tinctures, or a full moon zine subscription, go to Fox and Elder. 
com and enter code thatwitchlife at checkout. Fox and Elder, meeting you where you are, offering a variety of ways to step onto the plant path. Thank you to Fox and Elder for being an episode sponsor. All right. Well, I am super excited and trying to contain my fangirl self um, to introduce Sarah Marshall. Uh, Sarah Marshall lives in Portland, Oregon with a growing indoor garden and hosts the podcast You're Wrong About and Why Are Dads. Now, You're Wrong About is part of my Monday morning ritual. Um, it is the one I listen to directly after listening to ours. First, I listen to ours, make sure I didn't screw up too much. And then I listen to Sarah's for pleasure and for information. So, Sarah, welcome to That Witch Life podcast. Thank you so much for having me. That's so lovely to hear. It's hey, well, I'm going to um, tell another story, and this will embarrass Kanani. And I told myself I would stop embarrassing Kanani when guests come on, but she gives me so much material, it's kind of hard not to. So I will quit this show if you stop embarrassing her in front of guests. <laughs> <laughs> That's like what happened was percent of the reason people listen to the show. <laughs> so what happened was. Um, I heard about the show called You're Wrong About that had a two-part series on Tanya Harding, which if anything has to do with Tanya Harding, I stop what I'm doing and I go listen to it. And then I found, and I really like fell in love with Sarah's work and um, the whole podcast. And then when I informed Kanani that she would be doing a podcast with me, her response was, what's a podcast? And I explained it to her and she said, why would I want to listen to people talk? I try to avoid hearing people talk. <laughs> and I said, well, try this podcast because there's a whole episode on Anna Nicole Smith. And for years, Kanani has been defending Anna Nicole Smith whenever people made fun of her. And actually, she wrote a whole piece about it. Like the two times Kanani blogged, one of them was about, you know, leave Anna Nicole Smith alone. And I said, well, there's a whole episode about basically what you've said. And Kanani hung up the phone and went and listened to it. So <laughs> It was fabulous, so by the way. I absolutely oh. loved that episode. Thank you so much. That makes me so happy. And I feel like the, you know, the core of the show for me is defending maligned women. And that's always the main thing that I want to be doing. Um, and sort of, you know, the heart that that show has built up around. So I'm really happy that you found it that way. Well, and you've also got a whole new deep dive onto a princess Diana, which <laughs> the three of us were together when she died. And so, oh there's my been, gosh. I know. We it's were at true, the bowling we were. alley. We were at the bowling alley. And it was funny. Hillary got a premonition and she just turned to me and said, Princess Di just died. And I looked at her and go, What the hell is your problem? And she's like, No, it really happened. No, it really happened. Yeah. And it's funny because I completely forgot that that had been a thing that happened with us. And then Courtney was like, You said this. And I was like, Oh my God, I remember saying that. I mean, I don't remember saying it. I, I, it like came out and then I was like, what did I just say? Uh, yeah. And then, but yeah, we had known that there was an accident, but we, you know, we hadn't gotten any updates. And then I said, you know, like, I, I basically was like, well, this happened. Like she's gone. And everyone was like, what are you talking about? And right then on the news, it flashed like just a minute before that. It was, so it was very, wow. it, it was yeah, so that was a, that was a whole thing, but um, you know, why? One of the reasons that um, we wanted to have you come on and join us was one to gush a little bit about your work with maligned women, which we hope one day you'll do a series about us because, but we're probably justifiably maligned. <laughs> we earned it. <laughs> um, is that you've been working on a book about the satanic panic? Yes. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about your book and, and also what was a satanic panic? Cause we've all been dealing with the repercussions of the satanic panic for a million years, but why don't you tell us what that was about? 
Yeah, it is very obviously to me right now, currently the satanic panics world, and we're just living in it. Um, But two and a half years ago, almost three years ago, um, in the start of 2018, I decided to dive into the topic of the satanic panic just to research the first episode of You're Wrong About, actually. I was like, I was always interested in this, and this would be a good first episode. And then I'm sure that you all have experienced this too. There are certain topics that grab you and take you into their vortex. And the satanic panic did that to me, I think, because, um, you know, once you enter, you realize that it's not just one story, but an almost infinite number of stories that all fit together in this intricate and fascinating way. But the basics of it are that In the 1980s, it was a pretty widespread and mainstream belief held not just by fringy people, not just by evangelical churches, but by law enforcement, by district attorneys, even an idea that was being entertained pretty seriously by the FBI um, and believed very strongly by, by many parents and many people who still believe this, that there were organized satanic covens that were infiltrating communities, infiltrating daycare centers, specifically, and satanically abusing children. And the problem with this is that there was just never any kind of shred of evidence found that this was happening. And very quickly, you know, in this world where social workers were suddenly being told to question children about sexual abuse but hadn't really received training on it or had received training, but it was of a very slapdash variety because the idea of sexual abuse being an endemic problem in the United States was very new. The idea of social workers questioning children about what kind of sexual abuse they had or hadn't experienced was extremely new. So everybody was flying blind. And so there was this book that was published in 1980 called Michelle Remembers Mm -hmm. um, that basically detailed, and we did a few episodes, if you're wrong, about just about that book uh, because I find it so fascinating as essentially the satanic panic patient zero case. And basically what happened in that book is that this woman named Michelle Smith, who lived in Victoria, BC, started seeing her former therapist, Lawrence Pazder. And out of kind of dreams and random images, they put together through this relatively new therapy called recovered memory therapy that has also since been uh, debunked as something that is very likely to produce inaccurate memories or what seem like memories um, or feel like memories, but don't in fact relate to reality. Uh, So by doing this therapy on her, her doctor got her to produce over time these ever more elaborate descriptions of her mother giving her to a satanic coven who abused her and had a long ritual where they sacrificed a bunch of babies and summoned Satan himself. And where at the end of the story, the Virgin Mary appeared to little Michelle and took away all of her scars and took away all the memories until the right person could help her unearth them. And that person was Dr. Pazder, who was Catholic and who left his wife and his four children so that he and Michelle could get married at some point, I believe after this book came out. Um, But he was the one who coined the term satanic ritual abuse. And Michelle Remembers was published as nonfiction and then actually used as a training material for social workers who were learning to question children 
about potential sexual abuse and learning what to look for. And so something added was basically look for the satanic ritual abuse. And from there, it's, it's really a straight line uh, from these trainings to, to the cases that started this all, including the McMartin case in Manhattan Beach, California, um, and also to cases that we know extremely well now that happened much later, including the trial of the West Memphis Three. We can trace this back to these early law enforcement trainings with this very strange book written by this woman and her therapist who had fallen in love with each other. Um, and yeah, and then it really never ended. I could go on and on, but I'll stop there. <laughs> so I want to come back to a couple of points about the cases, but I think that one of the things that is, it's, it's really painful and it's really frustrating for people that identify as witches um, to come along and, and then there's this automatic equivocation that if you're practicing witchcraft, then you must be practicing, you must be worshiping Satan. And that there's this, ob- that they just, just like, and, and sometimes it gets very nuanced. It's like, even if you don't think you're worshiping Satan, you actually are. Right. And then it can lead to this, um, this sense of, of people being extremely mistrustful of people who follow pagan faiths. And I know I've had friends that parents will see their, their pagan jewelry or their witchcraft jewelry and actually pull children away from, wow. um, from them. Or, you know, there's sometimes it's fear that a lot of people stay in the closet or they never come out as being witches because they're afraid somebody will call child protective services and start making claims exactly like what you're talking about. And that parents will lose their kids just simply because they're practicing, you know, a spirituality and a religion that's different than the way a lot of people practice. I know a lot of our listeners have, are very, very, very secretive about being witches for that, Mm. that very reason of their neighbors making this, this claim. So, but come back, let's talk quickly about those two cases, about the mm. Memphis Three, and then um, you said, was it the McCabe case? The McMartin case was McMartin the, case. Yeah, the first big daycare satanic panic case in the early 80s. Yeah, and that, what happened in that case? So, I mean, this was a case where a mother became concerned that her son had been abused at preschool, and the thing that only came out to the public much later is that this woman um, was suffering... Um, from effects of of long-term alcoholism um, and also struggling with mental illness. Um, And this was something that the district attorney's office kind of tried to quiet down until, you know, it got to the point where this was impossible. And it was something that um, eventually undermined the case quite a bit, although not, not in the beginning. But basically, she became concerned that her son had been abused. There was a lot of media at the time about this... (laughs) relatively new what seemed like a discovery of the concept of child sexual abuse, which of course had been happening in America, but had been happening in a way that, um, you know, people didn't talk about. And the isolating nature of trauma, I think, is strong enough no matter what kind of culture it happens in. But it seems as if a lot of women who were starting to have children in the 70s and early 80s were going through this process of realizing that perhaps what had happened to them wasn't something that had happened only to them and mm. was something that was traumatic. There was also a kind of line of thinking that mid-century American parents, quite a lot of them seem to believe that if a sexual abuse event happens to your young child, then if you don't talk about it, they won't remember it and they won't interpret it negatively. So this belief that <laughs> 
the belief that abuse was harmful to children was relatively new. Like, I can't stress that enough. And I feel like it seems pretty new now. I think that a lot of American culture is really, you know, stepping away from sexual abuse. I think that we are still a pretty abuse um, driven culture when it comes to child rearing. There's Hmm. really just um, a lot of expectation that the privacy of the family includes the ability to quote discipline your child in ways that can be uh, pretty damaging and, and pretty severe. So all that's to say that I think that you know, we're a country that doesn't know how to treat children particularly humanely and that this big push to try and detect sexual abuse came from the right place. But unfortunately, you know, if you don't want to deal with the fact that you live in a culture that uh, shelters abusers in positions of power and perhaps encourages abuse dynamics, then the easiest thing you can do is start pointing the finger at people who can be marginalized as witches, basically. Um, and so in, in the case of that started McMartin, this woman whose son was two or three at the time uh, decided that she was suspicious that he had been abused at daycare. She started questioning him about it, and he started saying, you know, yes, he was. Yes, he had been abused. And also he had seen one of his teachers, or actually a relative of one of his teachers, Ray Bucky, fly through the air. Um, and so there's this interesting thing that happens oh where from the beginning, the child, the child, and then later the children that are making the abuse allegations are also just saying strange things that if you look back, you know, from with the kind of hindsight that we have now, or with the kind of clarity that people might've been able to have then under different circumstances, you can see that these are stories being produced by children were being pushed and pushed and pushed by adults to say something um, or to come up with an upsetting scenario of something upsetting that an adult could have done to them, um, specifically if they don't understand the kind of allegations that the adults questioning them are asking for. So children start to say strange things and the adults, rather than thinking, maybe this testimony isn't useful or maybe we're not going about getting this in a way that is is the most helpful to the children they say well i guess there was supernatural stuff involved i guess there's satanists we did get that training about this um and that's how it starts so going back to you know the the middle ages medieval era what what have you where you know people are being accused of witchcraft and they're being um they're being killed for it um you know, my whole theory is that whenever there is something in the community that is generally frightening people, it's very easy to go point the finger at witches. Um, or just, yeah, you know, like you said, there's mm-hmm. some other marginalized group. And when this was, you know, the witch burnings or the witch trials in Europe, there was, it was coming at the end of the black plague. And so there was this, this intense fear mm-hmm. of disease. And so whenever anybody got sick and not having an understanding of how diseases really worked, that, well, it must obviously be witches. Yeah, I mean, isn't that, I, I mean, that makes me think of the QAnon theory that essentially, you know, the, the Democratic Party is doing this and there's not a real et- epidemic. It's just that Bill Gates and all the, you know, liberal Illuminati want to inject everybody with something. I don't know what, but I mean, yeah, I mean, another thing to mention is that the, the allegations 
in the satanic panic from the beginning involve huge amounts of baby sacrifice. This is something that's a theme in, in Michelle remembers. And I feel like the connection to, you know, to medieval blood libel, libel and to anti-Semitic yes. conspiracy theories seems strong here also. And it's amazing that no one knew where these missing, ba- that no one was missing babies. You'd think <laughs> that that's something that a community would realize right. that suddenly babies are missing. You know what didn't occur to me actually until now, but this is the most obvious parallel. I can't believe I missed this is that, you know, one of the things happening now with these QAnon uh, conspiracy theories that are circulating on social media and which I see is sort of, you know, the grandchild of the satanic panic of the eighties is that there, you know, you see the statistics going around. I'm sure that, you know, anyone listening to this has, has seen these that, you know, COVID isn't the real problem. It's that 800,000 children go missing a year in America. That's the problem. Or like, you know, these libs that want you to put masks on your children, that's just so that they're at greater risk of human trafficking. And there's a statistic that your child is like, what, 666%, (laughs) whatever, like 666 times more likely to be abducted than to get COVID, right? It's like the ultimate redirect. Yeah, And also, well, and then it's the same problem because one of the things that my co-host of You're Wrong About Michael Hobbs has pointed out in various places very uh, wisely, I think, and this would not have occurred to me, is that if we have 800,000 children in this country who go missing a year, like they just vanish, why is it that we've only had like... This is a number I'm pulling out of the air. It's not exact, but at this ballpark, why did why did we only have like 150 Amber Alerts in 2019? Like, isn't the real problem that like <laughs> almost 800,000 parents don't care if their children just disappear? Like, oh my god, that's worrying. And it's the same thing with the Satanic Panic, right? Because the, as you listen to these stories, the more you believe, the more you have to extrapolate. You know about because the story is always this isn't just a California thing. This isn't just happening in whatever place where the big story is now. This is everywhere. This could be in your town. This is in your town. And it's just like, okay, all right. So you're telling me that these Satanists, like there's actually a line in Michelle Remembers about how (laughs) the body of a baby is as necessary to a Satanic mass as bread and wine is to communion. And it's like, how many babies are you guys going through? Like, are and, and it, it does, I mean, it, it's weird because it suggests this uncomfortable closeness to the truth where like America's reckoning with the fact that like all these children have been abused. We haven't dealt with it. We haven't tried to protect them. Like we've just kind of hushed it up for, you know, for decades and for generations. Like there is this reality of, you know, not adults just being monsters, but of them not parenting well and of not protecting their children the right way. And like, we should be upset about that. But instead we're like, yeah. Thousands of babies just go missing every year in this country, and nobody really minds. It's the weirdest thing. And I think what where I still see the remnants of the satanic panic within our own community among the witchcraft and the pagan community is especially with people that are new to witchcraft and to paganism. They're they're you know the, they feel some they read the book or they have an experience and they feel like this is right, but they get very nervous about going out into the community. And there's this fear that what if what if I'm told it's a nice, friendly pagan ritual and I get there and it's actually a satanic ritual where they kill a baby. And then they put my hand on the baby killing knife and then I'm implicated and I can't leave. And it's just like that chick crack said it would be. I know. Or what if they're, what if they sacrifice, what if they sacrifice me? Like I remember I had a friend who 
um, who came to, to my house to do a ceremony. And her mom said, if you go there, that woman will cut your heart out. Oh my God. And obviously I never did. <laughs> um, and, but that was the thing. And I, is that what happened to Susan? <laughs> she doesn't want her name being used. But I not even know who this friend is. Okay. You know who I'm talking about. Oh, of course I know who it I know. is. Cause it's crazy. <laughs> but anyway, it's like, I see the look on their faces that there's this fear that they're going to walk into that. And what, what the reality is, is those kinds of rituals don't actually exist. I mean, even people that identify as Satanists don't actually really believe in Satan. That's what's, that's what's the joke in all of this. Like that even Satanists don't worship Satan, really. They're more like anti, anti-established religion and anti, you know, and then pro-freedom of speech. But like when I was a teenager, I was afraid to even like look at a satanic Bible that if I touched it, like Satan would just appear. When I was in college, I read it and really there was nothing in there except a scathing critique of, of organized religion in a way that deserved a scathing critique, like, you know, the money that's taken from people and then used to keep this very expensive organization afloat when there are people starving. Like it made some really good points, but there was nothing in there that was like, yeah, Satan exists and you should hail this evil being. And it's like, and so that's one thing I just kind of want new witches to know those rituals, yes. you know, those rituals just don't exist. You're not going to stumble into one of yeah, them somewhere I, by I accident. That. It's not like, going to happen. People, I have heard that. I mean, you know, no, it's okay. I've heard that right, from people before and we have had, I mean, we've had listeners write in before saying like, you know, would this connect me with something evil or with it, you know, and it's like, I, I, you know, unfortunately that stigma that even though we're, you know, further away from that time period exists. That I'm just like, y'all, you're worried about something that's fake. New- it's fake. You know, it's like, it's not real, you know, it's, and so I think it's always really interesting to me to see people really panic in that sense about what it means. Like even, even, even not, even outside of stumbling upon a ritual or something, but that if they become a witch or they practice witchcraft, that they're going to get sucked into the devil or something. I'm just like, wow, you know, it's, uh, it's could not be further from the truth. I also think that, I mean, the satanic Bible is just the most amazing example of just, if anyone who was afraid of this book had bothered to read it at any time, they would have been like, Oh, cause like, I think it's pretty quick in. it's pretty, it's like 20 pages in that Anton LaVey is like, we don't literally believe in Satan. Like that's silly, but we believe in ourselves and we're kind of Ayn Randians. And we think it's cool to like have rituals where you get a naked chick to lie in an altar. And we like to, you know, do ceremonies. It's fine. And it's like, yes, you're just, I I love that. Like, I appreciate that the satanic Bible is basically like, we do this because it's cool. It's not, no one's, no one cares if you do it or not, whatever it's fine. It's, uh, it's very chill in the way that religion yeah, for sure. to be. Yeah. And I mean, it's also got like some of the best at the time, it was the best advice I'd seen about, you know, avoiding codependent relationships because it has a piece about just like emotional vampires, emotional vampires are people who suck you dry emotionally and don't give you anything back. Just avoid them. It's fine. So it's like the satanic panic was also one of the first resources where someone could find about advice probably about going no contact with like narcissistic friends and family members. Um, but that's too evil. So we can't let anyone find out about it as an option. I remember, and I don't even know if 
I don't even know if I told Courtney this at the time. I want to say that I was 14 and I was walking home from school with a friend and a bunch of people were all standing around and someone was holding a book and me being me, I just walked over and grabbed the book and I said, what are you guys looking at? And it was the satanic Bible. Hmm. And I handed it back to him as fast as I could, (laughs) ran home, hid in my room, waited for my dad to come home. And I was just acting upset and weird all night. And Mm. I'm already 14 and I'm a girl. So he's already terrified of me. (laughs) And finally he looks at me and he's like, what is it? What is wrong? What is going on? And I just started crying and sobbing. And I said, I touched the satanic Bible. And he's looking at me and he's like, why? And I'm like, I just, I didn't mean to, I took it from someone. And am I going to go to hell? And I, and I, and when I'm, when this is happening, I'm meaning this with every fiber of my being. As far as I'm concerned, I'm now going to hell. I have, I have touched something that is so unholy that, that I'm never going to be able to come back from this. And he just looked at me and he's like, you're okay. You're going to be okay. And, but that's the kind of fear that that kind of stuff, when you grew up in some sort of a religious or church type structure, that's the kind of innate, horrifying fear that has been instilled in you that anything that could possibly resemble anything resembling devil worship or the devil is horrifying. And you immediately think, now I'm going to spend the rest of my life in hell. I'm so glad you didn't tell me that story, Kanani, because I would have rushed over with a vial of holy water that I would have stolen from church <laughs> and bathed your hands in it and prayed for you. And then We totally oh. would have. When we were 14, we 100% would have. I was so terrified at the time that I just, and, and I swear that that indoctrination early on is what really hindered me from truly branching out into my witchcraft because there was always that part of me that kind of was having to reassure myself I'm not worshiping this has nothing to do with the devil this has nothing and eventually as you keep going and you progress you realize that these are completely separate universes one has nothing to do with the other but you have to like get that out of your system and relearn your way of thinking because of of how that what this triggers in people. And so I'm not surprised that back in the 80s that, that something with this drastic of a trigger could kind of go from 0 to 60 in half a second. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and it's like it was just the right story. It was like people were already anxious about children. We already had the sort of reckoning with sexual abuse in the 70s that was pushed forward by women's lib. We also have this weird thing happening in the 80s where the moral majority gets in through the back door of the White House with Reagan, and then we see this sort of anti-pornography feminism and Christian right uh, (laughs) combination hybrid, I guess, that, you know, is trying to join forces. All the joy out of the nation, just (laughs) like a leap. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And yeah, and it's just, it's really, it's, I don't know, I find it very sad and upsetting to think about, you know, I think the thing about the satanic panic is that it has so many spectacular casualties that it's easy um, to sort of stop looking at the ripples at a certain point, but they just go and go and go, you know, and even something, you know, is relatively minor in the scheme of things. Cause like people went to prison on groundless charges. Yeah. People 
are still in prison because of this. But just the fact that like this was enough, you know, fuel for terror that, you know, another generation of kids got to grow up in this environment of like, if you explore something that like feels good to you, like that's proof of evil taking hold. And aside from, you know, the, the very big thing of finding a, you know, a, a religion or a spirituality or just a way of existing in the world that feels authentic to you. And that feels like it connects you, uh, you know, to nature and to your own (laughs) self, like just this basic training of, you know, whatever feels good is someone evil trying to trick you. Like, don't trust how you feel. Listen to me. Like that is (sighs) very terrifying to me. And I think actually prepares people uh, for fascism somewhat well. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent because it's the old, it's super manipulative. It's like, yeah. it's, it, it, it's creating, it's, ga- I mean, it's kind of gaslighting in a way because it's like, it's telling someone that their reality is wrong. That what they believe and what they're, what they feel is wrong and that their reality is different than what they think. And yeah. so it's like, you have people that are going, I don't know, this feels so deeply right for me, you know? Christianity didn't feel like that or Judaism didn't feel like that or whatever religion someone was practicing didn't feel like that. I wasn't drawn to this. Now this feels right to me. And someone's like, yeah, but it's, you're going to, you're going to, it's a trick and it's the devil trying to trick you. It is, it's because it, it's, I mean, you lose control of people when the, the belief system that they follow isn't uniform. And I think that's often sometimes the most terrifying thing that people have when they first step into this is that you don't have um, the rules and restrictions on character, right? You're not being, you're no longer being fed what your morals should be. And you know, you have to instead figure them out for yourself. And that's absolutely terrifying to people in the beginning. And I'm not saying that to be condescending. I'm saying that in a, a sympathetic way, because I, I went through it myself. It's like, well, if there's no rules, then what? Then what's going to happen? Yeah. You know, what, same, if I, off. yeah, it's like what? What could I? What could I do? Will I fall off my bike? Well, what if you do fall off your bike? What's going to happen? You'll right. get back up. This actually, <laughs> this might be kind of a tangent, but this reminds me of um, the way that bread has been sort of popularized among like Silicon Valley types and tech guys, and there's this sort of like tech sourdough. Oh my god! Yes, the past few years, yeah, and where you read, you know, there are all these books. My mom got one of these books by this guy, Ken Forkish, and I remember reading it and I was like, this is insane. This guy is asking you, this guy is asking you to behave as if you are a drug dealer, which like, I'm not against for you, mom, but like, you know, you're weighing out all of your flour and grams and you do this for like eight minutes and you don't need the bread and everything is exact. And, you know, and then it's like, you follow this formula and you, you get, you know, results that you can sort of triangulate like well I did this this time and so next time I'm maybe I'll do whatever um and I feel like this is something that has opened up bread as something that a lot of people and maybe you know in a way that makes it palatable for men because they don't feel like what they're doing is feminizing because it's a science or something like that and oh, you know and a lot oh my of god it's do, so true right and, and a lot of and you know and I don't want to knock it completely because I think a lot of people are making bread who wouldn't be making bread otherwise. And I think that's great. Like everyone should feel, everyone should have their own way in. Right. But the problem with this is that like, Oh my God, the idea of making bread, the Ken Forkish way, like makes me want to just make a disturbance. Like it is so 
upsetting to me. The I, idea of I just want to make a disturbance. Right. Like I was like, I don't want to like get too histrionic. But yes, like it does. I think it's ridiculous because like if I am making bread, then I am not weighing anything. I am going to like eyeball it and I'm going to need it because if I'm making bread, I'm going to touch it as much as I possibly can because that is the point for me. And I'm going to get my hands in there and I'm going to start stirring in my flour. And when I can't mix it and I have to knead it, then I'll do that. And I'll keep adding flour until the dough is like, okay, I'm fine. And I'll be like, you're right. You're fine. And now we're going to rise for some amount of time. And and we have a relationship because I created you out of some yeast that I reanimated from my freezer. And I guess that's to say that like, I enjoy, you know, I enjoy the witchcraft aspects of bread where like you are communicating with an organism that you've brought into your home in an inert state. And you're like, okay, wakey, wakey, you're going to help me and I'm going to help you. And, uh, and just the sort of the personal interaction with it that I feel like gets taken away if you're not talking to your dough, but like to Ken or to whatever bread guy is in your kitchen. And now all I can see is like this bread Frankenstein walking around my house doing my bidding. Right. That's, that's what I want. There's actually a really, there's a wonderful show for toddlers called Sarah and duck where one of the plot points is that they try to make bread and, and it comes alive, but it doesn't get super big. It stays at a friendly size. When I watched Rosemary's baby for the first time at the very end of the movie, I looked at my husband and I said, what year did Vatican II happen? And he looks at me and he's like, he's like, what? And I said, I guarantee you this movie came out around the time that Vatican II ended and I'm happened. And I'm, I don't remember the, exactly the years, but it's like within two years of each other. Mm. It's like, okay, people are now afraid that, because that was one of the things that we talked about in religion class in high school was that people were afraid that Vatican II was basically letting down the guards of what like the church was actually protecting the world from evil. And by like saying the mass in the local language and having the priest face the people and actually talk to them that you were going to let evil into the world. Don't you love letting evil into the world? It's synonymous with the people understanding what's being said to them. Like that's a little worrying. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And it's like, it's, it's worrying that, I mean, it's, I, I, then I think that, what, then it just kind of tends to slip in this other way. Like, well, it's obviously not in front of your face, but you need to be, you need to be afraid of each other and you need to be afraid of people who act differently. Cause obviously they're doing something to the children. And now we've got this QAnon thing happening, which is, is really dangerous. And uh, in a way that I've not seen anything in, in my lifetime about it, like that it's encouraging people to shoot up pizza shops and, <laughs> you know, and <laughs> I think Sarah, you pointed this out on your show once, how hard it is to keep a secret among other people. And if you all know how hard it was to keep the secret from Kanani about her surprise birthday party Zoom bomb, then you'll know <laughs> that it was hard enough to keep a secret among 20 people for three days, let alone a conspiracy that involves thousands of people, you know, because people don't do well with secrets. Um, but I think also just was the governor of, of was it the governor of Michigan that there was a plot to kidnap her? And yeah. I'm sure we're going to find that. I think it's because and I'm sure we're going to find some links that go right back to QAnon because these people truly believed she was into some evil stuff. Because she was a governor and she has a vagina and because apparently you need to have a penis in order to run, you know, you have to run a government with your penis is all. 
yeah, it's very satanic to, to run a government without a penis, I think. I mean, and I would, you know, it's, offen- I would it's offensive, okay? It's offensive. It's offensive. <laughs> I, you know, I don't know what, I believe it's an Aramaic that, that Satan just means adversary. I might be wrong on that. But I've always, as someone who grew up in a secular home, like I remember watching Rosemary's Baby for the first time when I was 13 and being like, correct me if I'm wrong, but like, isn't this fantastic news? Like if we know Satan exists, we know God exists which is something that everyone has been wondering about and fighting wars about and losing their minds over apparently since we came up with the concept to begin with. So like, I don't know, man, I think this is great. Like everyone should just like dust their hands off and call it a day. And then, you know, the Satanists introduce Rosemary's baby, Adrian Woodhouse, I guess his name would be. And they're like, he will rise up and wreak revenge on society for the wretched and despised. And it's like, all right, I'm listening. Like you're talking, you know, because the idea that like that Satan is defined, I think most essentially not for his evil, but for the fact that he's a questioner and an adversary, you know, and he's the one who uh, inspires God to torture one of his, one of his worshipers for no reason at all. And he's the one who questions Jesus and the desert. And, you know, I think that um, it's interesting to me that a religion would brand the act of questioning as like, (laughs) as dangerous or more dangerous than just killing babies or whatever. Like the the fact that Satan is a questioner, um, you know, suggests to me that, that, this all has to do with training people to not think critically. Yes. That, I mean, I think that is at the core of it, right? Because again, you can't control people if, 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 they can have, if, if they have the ability to make their own minds up about their own thoughts, right? So if you tell people and you, and you use a fear tactic to say, oh, if you don't do it this way, you're going to burn in hell. I mean, that's a big threat right? That's a scary threat. So if, if we, it, you know, it, if, if people are allowed to go out on their own and, and find out like, okay, Satanism isn't real, you know, that means that when someone wants to go and find alternate spirituality, like they're free to go do that without this like repercussion of this fear that, as we've said before, what if I, what if it, it's the devil in disguise? What if, they're sacrificing babies and I'm part of it. You know, like whatever that fear is, that, that fear, I mean, fear in all regards, you know, in, in religion and in politics and in, in, in relationships and whatever is used. As, I mean, fear is control. If, you, if people are afraid and you convince them that you can save them for the th- from the thing that they're afraid of, they're going to listen. Mm-hmm. I would love to make a plug for um, anyone who hasn't actually seen Frankenstein by James Whale, the original Frankenstein with Boris Karloff. I just watched it. Um, it's so good. Because I was like, I've never actually seen this movie. Yeah, and it's amazing. And it holds up. It's very scary. And it's scary in ways that I, you know, we now have to wonder how much of this is intentional or not. But to me, the scariest part of it is when this mob appears to burn the monster who has killed a little girl rather innocently because he threw her in the water thinking that she would float the way a flower floats and then she drowns. So there's this, you know, this really deep tragedy of of this person, you know, making a creation, immediately abandoning him and the creation not knowing how to be or what to do. And then the, the people 
you know, forming a mob to kill him and chasing him, you know, to a tower and then burning it. And the most horrifying scene of the movie, I think, is, you know, you can hear this monster being burned and screaming. And you can also see and hear this happy, you know, it's not too much of a stretch of the imagination to see it as a metaphorical lynch mob um, that is just like happily chatting and laughing as they, you know, stand around with their torches. And I feel like the, you know, the Frankenstein story just is, is so powerfully a part of who we are as social animals. And I think that one of the positions that we like to get ourselves in socially um, and emotionally as Americans, as we think about, you know, just how are we going to behave uh, domestically? How are we going to behave uh, in terms of our relations with other countries? This seems so central to our national identity is the, the attempt to get ourselves into a position of imagined victimhood, like to create an American families, American middle class, American law enforcement and the American presidency, what have you this feeling of like, we are not the monsters. Like we are chasing this monster, this big scary monster that is going to kill all of our children. How can we be the monsters if we are only defending ourselves against the monsters? And it's like, I get that you're scared, but at a certain point it becomes like, at a certain point you have to ask yourself like why you're happily singing and chatting with your friends as you burn someone alive. Like, are you doing this because you truly had to, or are you doing it because putting your, because it made you feel better? Yeah. And because putting yourself you in better. a position of imagined victimhood and, you know, and I think this is the narrative that we apply to criminals in this country, just generally aside from moral panics, even like society isn't sick. We just have to find this person who's a threat to society and put them away and we'll be fine. And, you know, we swear, like, the next one will be fine. The next one will be fine. And it's like, listen, like, I just bought those new Nutter Butter wafers. And I keep telling myself that the next cookie I eat will be the last one. But for as long as they're in front of me, like, I'm just going to keep eating them. And I have to put them back. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to your tribe, Sarah. You have found your people. Yeah, you But I mean, true. I mean, but it's, I mean, that just rings so true. It's so, it's so true. You know, it's like, again, it's that false sense of safety, that false sense of, you know, of, of feeling like this one thing will fix my, don't worry. This one thing is going to fix my problem. If we do this one thing, it's going to be okay. Just trust me because if you, if I do this, you'll be safe. I'm going to protect you. I, I, so I just want, what I want people to hear is if they come into witchcraft is like, don't, don't bring with you the whole, I'm afraid to do it wrong because something will happen. I'll unleash something evil. It's like you need to keep, because then that leaves you vulnerable to, to predatory situations. And so make sure that you definitely um, don't like leave, you've, you left your origin, your religion of origin for a reason, you know, or you're incorporating witchcraft practices into your religion of origin for a reason. Don't bring with you any of that kind of, of, of fear mentality that there has got to be one person who's going to show you the way. And outside of that, you're going to, you're something, just something will happen, something bad. And without any, you know, definition to it. One of the things that Sarah kind of touches on, and I, everyone has to listen to her episode, Satanic Panic and read the book because it's just fascinating. And she goes into such an amazing deep dive. But one of the things that you kind of point out is this is something that 
culturally, this is the same story that we just repeat on different storylines of people kind of finding this, this villain and thing to be terrified of. And then it just creates mass hysteria. And I grew up, I was much younger in the eighties. So I don't recall kind of all these storylines and things like that. Cause I was, I was one of the people that was going to be abducted and killed. So I didn't know. <laughs> and so me too. Um, it's hard for me to, like it would have been hard for me two years ago to picture this actually being a thing. Like really, were really that many people worried about it? Like, or was this just kind of in one community or, or whatnot? And then we just had all of the QAnon nonsense that's happening, but much more specifically as you living in Portland, remember and live through with us when we had all of those fires, right? We had fires. People are terrified. People are having to evacuate their homes. They're having to leave their homes. They don't know if they're going to lose everything they ever had. And suddenly, instead of these being forest fires, and forest fires happen in the mm-hmm. world all the time, every year, these are fires that are being set by Antifa. Mm-hmm. Or Governor Brown. I think that they said she set them yeah, herself. They, they did. They literally said that it was her. As if she has oh that many God. hours in the day. <laughs> Right. There was both, but there was also Antifa. We had a nearby city where the craziness had gone so far that police departments in different towns were having to post and publicly state, stop calling us. No one is setting these fires. Leave us alone. We have other shit we need to do than take your psychotic phone call. And we had a city nearby where civilians with AK-47s stopped cars in the street from coming into town to interrogate them about who they were and why they were trying to come into town. It was mass hysteria within a week. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you had ever told me that somewhere in this town, civilians were going to be stopping traffic and stopping every car and not letting any car come into town, I would have said there's absolutely no way that would happen, one. And two, the police would never allow that. Well, the police were there. The police saw it. <sighs> and some of the police officers themselves were, were not unconvinced that people weren't setting the fires. So they allowed it to happen. This is making me think of how, you know, in the 2016 debates, which I guess we won't get a repeat performance of, Um, but there was a a period, I mean, this is what I remember of them. There was a moment in one of, uh, the debates against Hillary Clinton when Trump, you know, in order to misdirect or redirect from a a pretty good point she was making, as I recall, was basically was like, ISIS, ISIS is drowning people in cages. And I was like, right, like, it doesn't matter. Like you just say ISIS and, that's the Frankenstein or the Frankenstein's monster that we have right now. I mean, actually I'm fine with just saying Frankenstein because let's be honest, he was the monster in the story. If you like make an innocent being that doesn't know how to live and then abandon it, like you're the monster. Congratulations. But anyway, (laughs) you know, this was the great redirect that we had at the time. And it's like, I'm sorry, like (laughs) hanging out with automatic weapons and stopping cars that are approaching your town to interrogate them. Like, who does that sound like? I'm convinced that like whoever we identify as this major threat who we have to just 
you know, ends justify the means ourselves into responding to in these extraordinary ways. Like whoever we choose to fear, like we will become that. Yes. Wow. That's powerful. (laughs) It's so, oh my gosh, that's absolutely so true. Oh, Sarah, this has just been wonderful. So I think we figured out the moral of the story is that um, there, so with which lips out there, there are, you will not stumble into a satanic cult. Um, it will not happen. Um, if you, you know, worshiping a goddess does not mean that she is secretly Satan. Satanists don't actually worship Satan. Satan athletes <laughs> don't actually worship Satan. The fear of a satanic panic is actually has a direct link, some direct link to fascism. So, you know, that let go of fear and understand that you will continue to eat nutter butters as long as they're <laughs> sitting in front of you. We have, we now <laughs> and make bread your own way, y'all. You don't need, what's that guy's name again? Ken Forkish, who I'm sure is a lovely person, but I disagree with him in every way. <laughs> <laughs> and don't let Ken make your bread. All right, we found the tagline for the show. Well, Sarah, how can people reach you or find you? Uh, well, you can find me on my podcast, You're Wrong About, and on my other podcast, Why Are Dads, because um, I like to do podcasts with three-word titles that are the start of a sentence that doesn't end. And you can find <laughs> me on Twitter, where I'm at remember underscore Sarah, and where I will be tweeting about horror movies for until I get bored of watching them. Oh, awesome. Well, Sarah, thank you so much. This has been such a delight for me, and I'm just, I'm just thrilled. And Thank you all very, so very much for listening. Um, As a reminder, if you want to support the show, the best way is to subscribe on your favorite platform and spread the word. And please also consider leaving us a rating and review us on Apple Podcasts. Don't forget, you can also buy us a coffee. Check out our merch on our Etsy store or for bonus content, become a supporter on Patreon. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for show notes, audio transcript, or to ask us a question on a future episode. Go to thatwitchlife.com. Until then, keep moaning that shit. Talk to you next week. Bye. Find us at thatwitchlife.com for archived episodes or to ask your burning questions for us to answer in a future podcast. So mode it be. So, um, Kanani, uh, we released something cool on Etsy this week, I believe. I'm chewing. Hold on. Oh my god. <laughs> why, are you, why are you I'm like why are, I'm not why are you like this? Oh my god. I was like trying so hard to hide the hangry. My husband came home with dinner while we were recording and I like jumped, leapt at the door and I'm like, bring me my dinner. Okay. <laughs> so anyway.